ClickZ podcast with Tim Flagg. Insight, opinion and advice from the leading practitioners in digital marketing and e-commerce. As marketers, to be ready to adopt the way that the world is changing is a far more important discipline and skill than, for example, building up best-in-class expertise in TikTok. This is the ClickZ Digital Marketing Podcast, and I'm joined today by legendary marketer Dan Gilbert. We'll be talking about how and why marketing has changed, bringing creativity and science together to produce highly effective marketing campaigns. Dan Gilbert is the CEO and founder of Brain Labs, one of the most effective and successful digital marketing agencies in the UK. He is a regular speaker and commentator, and I've had the pleasure of introducing Dan at a number of marketing events over the last few years. Dan will be giving his advice on building effective marketing campaigns and sharing some great case studies. We'll hear what it means to apply an experimental approach to marketing and why it's the only way to future-proof your business. We'll also be discussing transparency and how the role of agency partners and technology will develop in the future. Dan, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today on the ClickZ Digital Marketing Podcast. You're very well known as one of the leaders in the digital marketing industry here, and I'm really looking forward to getting some of that insight and experience and some of your thoughts on what's coming next in the world of digital marketing. But to start off with, I wonder whether you can tell us a little bit more about who you are and what Brain Labs is. Tim, thank you firstly so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm Dan Gilbert and I run Brain Labs, which is a performance marketing agency. I started my career at Google, actually, uh, which was great fun. I worked out in in Dublin, Ireland for a couple of years. Uh, And the amazing thing that I found at the time was that the digital ad industry was really just kicking off. It wasn't new, but it was really kicking off into the mainstream. And, and with it brought so many changes to the way that we were actually doing advertising at the time. So after many, many discussions and, and strategies back and forth with some of my clients from Google at the time, um, I realized that there was this huge opportunity to fill in the more scientific, data-driven, technology-driven portion of marketing that, that previously hadn't really existed. So that's how Brain Labs began uh, uh, eight years ago now, and that was in my parents' attic. Uh, that the own personal journey has taken me through many different stages uh, to 300 people now internationally with most of our business in the US and the UK. Um, so it's been a, a wild and fun journey at the same time. Fascinating to hear how you've seen it from the inside. First of all, they're at Google, seeing all the changes which Google have made to the industry and then right up to date how those changes have now become part of everyday marketing for, for most of us. I'd like to ask you now, as you've seen what's been happening, what do you think have been the biggest changes within the industry that you've seen? Setting some historical context around this is probably the easiest way to approach it, which um, if you look back to something like 1978, there were there were three TV channels and one of them carried advertising in the UK, not dissimilar in the US. Um, so at that time, and, and for the many years that, that followed, when you think about what advertising was as a discipline, it was very creative. And this is the kind of mad men era. So you come up with brilliant ads that are going to engage your audience, which is a huge skill in and of itself and something I've got great admiration for. And then on the other side, it was very commercial. So uh, media agencies that, that negotiated deals to distribute those creatives across lots of different media. Um, uh, so, so very creative and very commercial, but almost in, entirely separate in, in some ways, like those two entities or the responsibilities could be divided up and run by different people. 
hence the structure of most advertising agencies being split between creative agencies and, and media agencies. One was a highly creative discipline, the other one was highly commercial. And what you get with digital advertising that goes from being an add-on, so 2 or 3% of media in, in the year 2000, to where we are now, where it's surpassed uh, um, traditional media or um, non-digital media, so more than 50%, and, and by most estimates will be all-consuming within the next 10 to 15 years. It's a case of, of if, of, of, of when, not if. Um, so when you think about what that brings with it, it, it changes the way um, that we think about advertising and it introduces a new dimension. It doesn't remove the need for the creative and the commercial side of things, but it adds this new dimension around um, uh, a level of science that we can apply to marketing that never could happen before. Um, and what I mean by that science is this, we now have this ability to test at scale what our customers are responding to using the right data measurement framework, we can really personalize and uh, direct specific messaging towards people that allows us to um, listen to the feedback about what's working uh, and direct our marketing in, in, in more um, direct, kind of direct personalized ways, which is how you increase effectiveness. So um, it's that layer that really has changed. The, the industry fundamentally has changed. Um, and there's a couple of subplots within that about both the way that creative has changed and the way that media has changed. And you look at the media side and once upon a time it was a trading type uh, uh, task. And now we mostly bid for media in live auctions where the price is the same for everyone. So the skill set required to do that has changed. And then on the creative side, if you think that it was all about creating one or two special ads per year on TV, now, um, you know, there's, there's, there's thousands of different ad formats on on the mobile device, which is which is vastly becoming the the the, the largest medium that we can communicate with customers on. Um, so, you know, let alone designing one ad in in one format, we have to create thousands and then update them in real time as well as as we're moving our advertising forwards. So you think about it both from a creative and from a commercial side the game has changed. And then there's this scientific element that has also been introduced that has, that has changed the skill sets required to deliver great advertising. Um, so it's a really exciting time to be part of it, I think. Now, Dan, we've been talking about the science of marketing, the way in which as marketers, we need to change the way we look. We need to be looking at that sort of test and learn approach. How do you think that has impacted upon the skills which a marketing team need to have? Uh, you know, if you go back a while, marketing was almost seen as being the colouring in department, you know, a bit fluffy. Whereas now there's this real emphasis on having to not just understand the technical side, but also the statistical, uh, the analytic side of things as well. So we need to have a much deeper skill set. So what would your advice be to marketers who are listening to this and wondering what it is they need to know, what skills they need to have? have to be successful as modern day marketers? Well, I think the first thing to say is that the art most definitely hasn't disappeared. In fact, it's more relevant than ever than ever before. So good creative and good planning is at the core of any successful advertising campaign. And we, sh we shouldn't get so obsessed with the science that we forget about that. Um, however, uh, actually, what, what one of the, the best parts about this more scientific edge to how we run and measure and test at scale is um, there's, a, there's a shift in, in the way that marketing departments need to organize themselves around um, testing-led programs as opposed to highest-paid opinions. So once upon a time, it was the art director, creative director, or CMO that would say whether or not 
a piece of advertising would resonate with their customers. And there's this assumption that firstly, customers are all the same, uh, but that they know their customers the best. And there were some geniuses that did that over the years, of course. Um, and you still need a bit of that that streak to, to idea generate in the first place. But the difference now is that there's quite a humbling experience that happens when you run an effective test and learn program because you can now actually listen to your customers and they'll tell you what, what they respond to and what they like the most and what they don't. Um, so it's, it's setting up in a way that you can listen to that feedback and go in removing the ego from, from a lot of the marketing campaigns and the marketing communications to, to, to listen more and re-engage with that and, and still be equally creative, um, uh, but in a slightly different way. Yeah, I'm definitely seeing that over the last few years now. Clients are much more willing to test things out and get the results and actually see what is working. I think, you know, as marketers, we're so overwhelmed with all the various options we've got for new technology, new tools, and we have to try things out a little bit and test them, see whether they work, get the data and be able to make that sort of business case for whether it's working or not. Uh, And there's a whole new area there of, of getting into testing the AB and the multivariate and all that kind of cool stuff we can do, which now as marketers, we really have to have those those basics, this is skill, still skills to be able to do that. But I wonder whether you've seen that change with clients that you're working with, whether they've sort of come on that journey now as well, whether they're embracing that approach to testing things out, putting aside a bit of a budget to, to try and see whether they work and then moving on and scaling up the things that do work, learning from the mistakes. Is that something you're seeing with your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it varies greatly from the different clients that we work with, some that are at the beginning of their kind of digital journey and some that are already well advanced. Um uh, our role in any of those situations is to help elevate their capabilities, regardless of where they're starting from. Um, there is probably a growing recognition, of course, in the space that, that they need to be set up to um, to experiment more. Um, but that's a difficult change sometimes to make. It can be it can be cultural as much as it is just a decision from a marketing department that that's how they're going to organise. Um, and it can link back to the to the data piece. And Dan, how do you get people on board when they are maybe worried about the risk of running experimentation? Because as we know, when you're running a test, there's sometimes some failure, there's sometimes mistake. Um, But as we're marketers, we're trying to convince sometimes the senior board to take that risk because we know that's the only way we're going to be able to innovate and grow. So what would be your advice? Well, the way that I think about a failure in a test is that the, the, the only way it can be a failure is if we fail to learn from it. Uh, so even a drastic underperforming A versus B test tells us something interesting about our website and tells us something about our customers or our digital experience or whatever, whatever it is that we're testing. So it's an opportunity to improve the business model. And as long as the business is geared up to test in a way that, um, you know, you, you wouldn't want to run a failed test on, for example, 50% of your traffic and uh, destroy that portion of your marketing budget for a day. Um, but if we are geared up to intelligently test and understand what's working, what's not, then there's there's actually very little risk in, in doing that. The risk comes from actually um, uh, things that we observe quite often, uh, which are non-testing led approaches. If you look at the conversion rate optimization space, for example, so you take on this concept of a website redesign, I can probably confidently say that I've never seen anyone um, redesign a website uh, launch that and see an uptick in conversion rate. Uh, it's this kind of mythical process that people love the new design and 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 think it looks really slick and and just haven't accounted for all of the different ways that their customers previously used their website. So the, the example that 
um, I think is more relevant and probably one of the most successful businesses in the world is from Amazon, where uh, they might do, depending on how you look at it, uh, 500 website redesigns in a day uh, or none at all. Uh, so actually, you know, if you look at it, the, the, the website has, has never been relaunched. It's just been constantly iterated with, with you know, any time, many tests running to determine which features should change. Um, so I, I think, you know, when, when you frame it like that, um, there are plenty of examples of website redesigns that have gone completely wrong, not been led by a, a, an experimentation process. Uh, uh, the risk is, is almost the other way around, which is maybe difficult conceptually, but um, uh, there are plenty of studies to support that idea. That's been really useful to get your advice there on how we can start to do testing and how we can make sure we get it into our businesses uh, and really innovate with that. Now, I'd like to open up a little bit wider and ask you what do you think are the bigger challenges which advertisers are facing? There are a few, <laughs> of course. So I think technology is, is probably the place that I would look first because that's where... Um, there's been the largest development and almost an explosion in the marketing ads technology space. Um, I think the place that, that I start with this is uh, technology is not a strategy in and of itself. It, it should be in its truest form an enabler for a good marketing strategy. So every stage of uh, the marketing journey, whether, whether it's through planning, data setup, uh, uh, campaign launches, experimentation, data science, and even operationally implementing results back into a business, every single one of those should be supported by technology. The problem that we've got is that the ecosystem has become so complex uh, and, and so saturated that um, uh, people, are, particularly like marketers, brand side, uh, uh, sort of, and, and maybe agencies are complicit in this, but they've started to to be made to feel quite stupid because they don't understand the space. Um, the reality is that no one can understand it because there's more names than any human could possibly remember. And each piece of technology that that separates, for example, in the ad tech space, the the publisher from the advertiser has to be very carefully considered about the actual value that it's going to add to the marketing journey and to how we communicate with customers uh, rather than being licensed or added onto the stack because we want to build out a great stack. So I, I've seen that um, if you think, if we zoom in on, for example, the programmatic space, um, I've seen this, this concept of a DSP, which is um, a demand side platform. So something that allows you to bid for inventory. I've seen customers and clients and, and maybe under the guidance of certain agencies add on DSP after DSP after DSP and in, in even wrap together under a meta DSP. And when you actually look at what they're doing, they're, yes, increasing reach and adding inventory with every DSP that they add on to the mix. Um, but they might be adding three, four five percent for each DSP that they add on. Uh, but they're making it, you know, for every five percent of inventory that they're adding, they're making it 10 percent more difficult to join up a customer journey. So they have to integrate different platforms together. So when you look at that overall and actually assess what the problems were that we were trying to solve for, you have to question whether inventory and reach was the problem in the first place. Um, the bigger problem is the marketing strategy and how we communicate with customers in a seamless way and serve up ads on, on the websites that we want to appear on. So I think I, I would point to that as a classic example of um, uh, overexcitement about technology and what technology can do and, and a stripping away from um, uh, actually creating brilliant marketing strategies that cut through to customers, which might sound a bit strange from someone that comes from a tech technology background and, and runs a technology-enabled business. But I think part of understanding 
uh, and part of being brilliant with technology is, is understanding its, its, its role and sometimes its limitations. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, I think that we've covered a number of different issues in that. And I'd like to just focus on one, which is wastage. We know that within the advertising spend, there is so much wastage. Very little of that budget we're actually putting out there is getting onto buying the, the impressions. A lot of it's just being dissipated. Now, agencies have a lot of their own internal KPIs. And I think it's that classic thing that they're they're really sort of chasing reach rather than trying to be more specific. They're going after quantity and volume rather than quality. Um, but I wonder whether the result of that is what we're now seeing that consumers are being really irritated by just these huge numbers of ads they're seeing every day, um, which often aren't very relevant. And we're irritating the consumers and the natural consequence of that is that they're now installing a load of ad blockers. So whose job is it really to to put that right? Whose responsibility is it? Is it consumers driving things forward now that they're empowered with uh, data privacy law? Or is it the industry? Is it the industry's responsibility to try and make the the advertising much more targeted? I mean, it's, it's interesting because you can look at it from both sides. There's a responsibility to make advertising more relevant. And that's when uh, you know, that's when consumers will play ball. So I don't think any consumer ever objects to advertising that that, that they find relevant and um, uh, non, non-intrusive. I think the greatest antidote to volume-driven KPIs that don't match the client, et cetera, et cetera, is, um, is quite straightforward in some ways, which is that, that clients and the agencies that they select potentially – have a responsibility to tie back their marketing activity to profit or at least revenue. Um, and when you do that, a lot of those, you know, should we buy here? Is there good viewability, et cetera, et cetera, um, uh, kind of disappear because the marketing department operates and works towards what, what delivers the most profit in the long run, not at the expense of a good customer experience and not at the expense of, of doing the right thing. Um, but it, it helps to direct the marketing activity in, in the right in the right way, um, and I think many marketers and many marketing agencies are too scared to even say the money word. Uh, but but I've always known, and we've always known as as brain labs, that our job is to help businesses make more money, and that's in some ways one of uh, probably the most important, and not the only one, to be sure. Uh, uh, the ways that you gauge the success or otherwise of a, of a business. Um, certainly in the long run, if you're not profitable, then you can't sustain a business. Um, I, don't mean to, <laughs> I don't mean to oversimplify things, but it's sometimes useful to reason from first principles and remind ourselves of what our job actually is. So having the right measurement framework to actually be able to measure um, uh, what success looks like, i.e. what generates revenue and what generates long-term revenue and what generates repeat revenue and therefore profitability is is probably the single biggest antidote to some of the questions that come around, you know, what does a successful test look like and where should I spend my media? Um, uh, to me, that's the right way to, to approach the problem. Now, one of the trends we've seen over the last few years is brands really doing much more in-housing. It started, I suppose, with social and search. And now it's also display. There's been a lot of brands bringing display in-house and we're starting to see not just um, in-housing, but hybrids as well. Uh, and, and I think it really helps with this challenge we have about transparency, because, of course, when you've brought that um, buying in-house, you get a 
lot more access to to data. I, I remember when I was at uh, Zipcar, we in-housed our media buying then, and it meant that we had access to the DSP and all that data, and I could actually get those insights. But it also meant that there's a wider team. I could bring my creative team in, and they sat next to the the media buyer, and they were able to test and learn immediately, and just have that that really f- free flowing of new ideas. And 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 of course that transparency, I knew exactly how my media was being spent. Do you think that in-housing is transforming the industry? And do you think that we have kind of reached maybe so peak in-housing or is it still a, a trend which is growing? It's a great question, Tim. And I think you touched on a few different areas. I always like to think of transparency in, in at least a couple of different ways when we break it down. Um, and what you've described there are some of the forces that have that have driven this trend towards in-housing that um, we're actually quite in, in, in support of, by the way. Um, as a business, we're geared up um, to support that, to help people transition in-house and to work with in-house teams. Um, when you actually think about the role of an agency, it's to make teams better than they would be otherwise. So um, actually, you can gear your services towards that quite easily. I think, you know, coming back to the trend and what's driven it, in, in a transparency context, I mean, point number one is... Um, uh, is my partner transparent around how much the media is costing me and then and then charging that back to me? And the answer was a resounding no in most instances, according to the ANA report uh, and according to what we basically know is to be true across 99% of the media uh, landscape. And um, uh, that is incentive in and of itself for clients to bring their media in-house point number one so um knowing that they're being charged and that they're being charged the right right amount uh, transparently so i mean that is that is you know point number one point number two that you kind of um zoomed in on which i think is a really important one is is around data and data ownership and it's spoken about less than perhaps uh the rebates kickbacks chargebacks uh etc but i think will become an increasingly important issue um, uh, in the ecosystem and uh, the smartest advertisers will realize that it's important for all the reasons that you mentioned to own their own data and I don't you know I don't want to use whatever the the common marketing like data is the new oil or whatever it is uh, uh, data is just data uh, and it's hugely valuable always has been for businesses that want to understand how they should perform better as, as a business so to have someone external own that uh, uh, is not the right strategy for for a growth business, in in my opinion, um, and particularly to have then uh, a structure where an external party who's responsible for buying the media um, uh, effectively marks their own homework by saying which channels are the most effective is just not the right setup to get the most out of uh, your overall marketing efforts. Um, so I think this, those you know this, we can look at transparency in in a couple of different ways, and and for me those are the two biggest. There are more. Um, uh, but that's really what's what's driven the trend. I don't think it's necessarily all the brands in the world saying we can execute all of this better ourselves and we can create a marketing strategy that's better than any agency and we can do all the creative. I think what they're really saying in, in a lot of ways is, well, some parts of this are better executed under our direct remit. And, um, you know, as an industry, I think it's something that, that we, we welcome personally. It's, it's obviously in contrast to the business model of many of the, of much of the agency ecosystem. So there's going to be pushback, but for the most part, um, uh, I think if you look at this from an advertiser control and effectiveness perspective, I think it's a great thing. Um, and you know, as, as agency partners in that ecosystem, we have to be there to, 
um, to add that layer of strategic value where it's difficult for them because they're not connected to the market to, to train up the people, to help them find people, um, uh, to fill in the gaps where they have no executional power or can't hire the talent and to link it all together. And if that's the role of an agency partner in the future, then, then great and probably truer to the term agency than, um, than the current setup in, in network media agencies where Actually, I think it's quite difficult to justify the term agency being used because um, uh, charging clients more than the media has cost is is not an agency. It's a principle um, and it's not an agency relationship, one in which um, the, the partner is meant to elevate and act on behalf of the business in their best interests and only in their best interests. Now, you mentioned the importance of data ownership. And one of the reasons it's really important, becoming more important, is because of data privacy. And I think a lot of the time, people are consumers are very worried about what's happening with their data. It's been really highlighted with things like GDPR. But also as a company now, we have a responsibility to know how the data which we've collected about our consumers is being used um, through the supply chain as well. So we, as, as advertisers, have um, a greater risk now around how we're using this data. And I wanted to get your sort of thoughts on this on how data protection is affecting how we buy advertising. My kind of take on it is that it's a positive step for the industry. So when you think about third-party data and how that was previously traded in in kind of pre-GDPR days, it's kind of like the Wild West. And as a consumer myself, I don't like the idea that my data will be passed on lots of different ways and, and resold and repackaged. But actually, even as an advertiser, when you have like these segments of third-party data that that you can use to help target your campaigns. Um, not knowing exactly where that's come from or what the consent process has been for that is actually quite unhelpful. So actually having a smaller data set where you know that people have actively opted into that and um, it's with their consent and it's more um, uh, reliable is actually a, a positive thing, I think, for advertisers overall. So I think you know it, it definitely caused some challenges and um, I'm not saying that GDPR is the most fun thing in the world, yeah, but a clean, a clean um, data sharing ecosystem is is really ultimately for the benefit of advertisers and consumers. Um, uh, uh, maybe not the people that package up and resell the media in between, but um, I'm not sure how much they really contribute to a healthy ecosystem in the first place. Um, so I think I welcome the change, and you know it's our job to navigate that slightly different world. But that's you know that's you know that's exciting in a way. Now we've touched upon the data privacy laws which are coming things like gdpr which i think everybody knows about but we've also got e-privacy coming at some point in the next couple of years and of course ccpa in the us these are reasons of changing the way in which marketers have to look after uh, data from those consumers but it's also sitting down some really big challenges to the way in which behavioral targeting has worked because that relies so much upon cookies which um, i sometimes call it the cookie winter is coming and this cookie apocalypse means that that those third-party cookies may lo no longer be available if the browser is going to be blocking them and if under e-privacy they're not going to be allowed. Um, so I want, want to ask you what you think the future of targeting is going to look like and whether you think that something like contextual targeting will be the solution. Mm. It's a really interesting question and I think you know there's there's a I think there's a short-term and a and a long-term answer to this. Uh, uh, the, the long term is that I think the industry will move to a place where it's more consumer led. So consumers will um, uh, opt into and decide what type of advertising they want to see, where and when. And 
that will be significantly data, better data than inferred data that we get from where they've browsed and what we think they are and whether we think they're male or female and what age bracket we have. Uh, an amusing thing to do if you want to know uh, what Google thinks about you. I can't remember the specific page, but you can go and if you Google uh, what does Google know about me, uh, uh, it tells you who they think you are. And because of my slightly diverse uh, uh, role, um, uh, browsing lots of different websites for lots of different clients, or maybe just my personality. I think I was classified as a, as a 70 year old female. So I actually, you know, as a consumer and I'm just looking through a, a single person, maybe an enlightened advertising type, uh, executive, but I don't actually don't mind telling Google and, and Sky AdSmart and any other, and Facebook, uh, exactly who I am and the type of advertising that I would like to see. Um, so I don't mind giving that signal. And in the long run, I think certainly the next generation of people already ha understand the kind of value exchange that all of these platforms are free and funded by advertising and would rather see targeted relevant ads than, uh, you know, I'd rather see one targeted relevant ad in, in, a, in a live TV context than, than 10 ads that have no impact or um, uh, interest for me now or ever. Um, and I get plenty of those. I think that's right. It, it, it comes down to trust, doesn't it? You have to trust whoever it is that you're sharing that data with. I mean, you gave the example there of, of AdSmart. And I think if you are, uh, if you know Sky, you're a Sky user, then you do trust them. But it's different when you're being approached by a completely faceless corporation, an ad tech business who's asking to gather your data and use it to profile you. There's, there's a real lack of trust for that. Correct. And I think that's why in the long term it will reward the advertisers who have the most robust and transparent um, trust policies. Um, so, you know, there will be a move away from uh, the people that are doing it um, sort of surreptitiously. And I think the, the you know, you spoke about cookie apocalypse and uh, uh, the drastic changes that we're getting to cookie measurement in, in the short term. I think my first kind of overlay on this was, um, well, it was never accurate to begin with. So anyone that, that thinks that their attribution model is is truly scientific um, was was misled or mistaken by either salespeople or, or, or hype. Um, you know, the, 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 apart from the weaknesses of the platforms and how they integrate with other platforms um, uh, and the cookie loss that goes with that, uh, there is an undeniable non-internet based conversation happening outside of, of our digital ad ecosystem that is when people talk to each other and, and use that to decide whether or not they're going to buy something or engage with something and then do that on a completely separate device uh, or as a separate person that we could never track in the first place. Um, so I don't mean to be um, dismissive, and, and that doesn't mean that we shouldn't invest in in trying to attribute our marketing data better. I think it's that we do so understanding the imperfection of where we were to begin with. And of course, it's got a lot worse, which has forced people to have different solutions now. Um, uh, now that all the platforms are removing cookies or blocking cookies, et cetera, at the same time. So where we've stood on this and where I've always stood on this and where I think, you know, this has fallen into our hands in many ways, because I think it was the, the smartest way to think about it in the first place was, um, was to be driven by a test and learn approach, even to attribution. So, um, there is no perfect attribution model and an attribution model is only useful insofar as it helps us divvy up our marketing activity better. Uh, to ultimately make more profit or more revenue for a business. So, um, you know, this wild idea that we had was, well, why don't we take in in some regions or a, a careful split of a, a particular country, why don't we run the business using one attribution model or one attribution logic and take another region and use another logic? 
and see which one actually performs better for the business in, in, in the long run. Um, and the noise that happens in between or the mathematical model that goes behind it and the cookie loss that happens in one area or versus another, we, we eventually, if you, if you test enough, then you can optimize towards the optimal solution. And uh, why it's the optimal solution is actually not as important as the process that helps you get there. And the interesting thing is that so much more of the world operates in that way than we would like to believe. Um, there's, there's a guy called Tim Harford who writes for the, um, is the undercover economist and, and has done some brilliant work. Um, and he sort of describes even the, the, um, the pharmaceutical industry being so much more accidental than people would have credit for. Uh, uh, that has kind of built up through this test and learn process. Like you run this double blind study on a drug that someone thinks is going to work for some reason, or is usually based on some ancestral wisdom or plant compounds. And we end up with these pharmaceutical drugs that people would sort of believe came from some, uh, you know, original principles around science, but actually it's the process that's the science rather than necessarily the ideas or the theories about what should work in the first place. Like most of the time, not it's things that we didn't know should work or could work that actually ended up working. Um, um, so I think same applies to, to the way the world works and the way that marketing could work. Yeah, I think it goes back to that mindset that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, you know, that approach of Reese of getting the data and testing and iterating things. Uh, and, and marketing leaders need to have that, that change in mindset now, be able to adapt. Now, thinking a bit more about marketing leaders and as we start to wrap things up, I wondered whether you could give us some advice. What's your advice for a marketing leader listening to this in terms of what skills and what they need to be focusing on over the next couple of years? Well, I think um, you actually touched on something really nice, which is the mindset uh, that, that is required to go into this next phase of marketing. And I would, um, you know, we hire against and promote against growth mindset. Uh, and that is not just growth mindset in terms of how do we grow a business, but this concept that we should be um, constantly listening to feedback to improve ourselves and to improve our marketing campaigns and the people that we work with. Um, uh, because, you know, for all the predictions, none of us really know what marketing will look like over the next five years. There'll be new platforms that are introduced that are now the right way to reach people. Um, I can't remember how old it is, but someone reminded me how old Facebook was, and it was it was astonishing. Like I couldn't I couldn't believe it. But if you think about that in probably tens of years, fifteen years, and and you know low level at the beginning, but but now um, uh, you know responsible for, for um, a large portion of global advertising spend. Um, I think is it ninety is ninety billion dollars globally in two thousand and nineteen. Uh, projected to get to $125 billion in 2023. So, um, you know, it's an astonishing ecosystem, but with a platform that's 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 responsible for the majority of that, uh, uh, only 15 years old. So there will be different platforms, and I don't say that to knock any of my wonderful friends at Facebook, but, but that is the reality of, of how platforms work. Um, and I wonder whether we can just get your quick insight on that, because I think you're probably coming across many more of these technological innovations and you're out there sort of working with these big companies. Uh, and I wonder whether you could give us a, a bit of a glimpse of the future. And what do you think is going to be the, the tech which is going to be really exciting over the next uh, five or 10 years? Uh, you know, back to the, the previous kind of logic and the way that I uh, attack problems and think about problems is, yes, I have an eye on some technologies, but it's more important to design a, a testing-led experimentation approach um, to set yourself up for whatever platforms end up being successful or otherwise. 
Um, so it's not that I don't want to commit necessarily to what platforms, uh, you know, everyone can see which platforms are growing the fastest. I think TikTok will be an important part of the advertising ecosystem in the next five years, 10 years. I have no idea. It doesn't exist yet. Um, uh, that, that's the reality, but setting ourselves up, um, as marketers, as, as teams, as agencies, as brands to be ready to adopt the way that the world is changing is a far more important discipline and skill than, for example, building up best-in-class expertise in TikTok. Um, uh, that, that for me is is the kind of takeaway message that I would uh, that I would encourage people to go away with and and to take back to their teams and and train their teams towards, um, you know, those softer maybe I don't like the term soft, but the um, the personal skills the um, uh, the emotional, psychological capabilities, um, learning capabilities rather than any specific, you know, specifically chasing any technical knowledge. We need the technical knowledge as well, of course. Um, uh, but, but knowing the system and knowing the way to learn and the way to grow, I think is more important. And I wish we taught that more in schools. Yeah, I, I agree with you hundred percent there. I think it really underlines the importance of having that mindset and being able to get the right skills. It goes back all the way to, to schools and, and I'm really sort of encouraged by some of the new innovation there, but also within apprenticeships, bringing young people into the workplace who have these digital mindsets and these digital skills as well. Uh, and then, um, right through all, all, uh, we're all learners now, aren't we? Where, you know, we, we never stop learning. We need to make sure we're constantly keeping up with these right skills. That seems to be a consistent theme to what we've been talking about today is just that, you know, that, that having the right mindset can really help you as a marketer develop and really looking at that sort of test and learn approach, which has, I suppose, led to a lot of the success which you've uh, kind of had at, at Brain Labs. Um, but now just to, to wrap things up, because we're getting near the end now, I wanted to just ask you, what's the best way that we can stay in touch with you and find out more about what's happening at Brain Labs. Well, we are working up a couple of very interesting reports. The best way to stay in touch with me is on LinkedIn. Um, uh, I'm quite active on there, as I think you commented on earlier, Tim. Uh, <laughs> so uh, 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 feel free to reach out to me there. Brain Labs are at brainlabsdigital.com. Um, and uh, uh, love to engage on all of those platforms. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure and you're a great interviewer. So um, uh, thanks for your time. Well, well, thanks, Dan. Uh, it's been great to have you in the podcast today and it's been really informative. We've covered so many different topics uh, and, you know, there's so much more we could have talked about. Who knows? Maybe we'll be able to get you back at some point in the future to talk more. But thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you so much. Find more episodes at clickzcom forward slash podcasts or follow me on Twitter at Tim for Change. We'll be talking to more of our experts over the next few weeks. Until then, keep up to date with ClickZ. And don't forget to review us on iTunes and Stitcher. ClickZ, the original digital business intelligence company, founded in 1997, providing best practice advice, trends and insight from leading analysts and practitioners to a global community of more than 300,000 digital marketing and e-commerce professionals. Thank you for listening and bye for now.